Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, for the, uh, the way that the Psalms take us to a level and a place of looking closely at the condition of our heart. And we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for the exposure of the, the, the sin and idolatry and wickedness, Lord, that is present in our hearts. And Lord, we are also thankful for the mercy and forgiveness that is, that is placed on those hearts because of the cross. And so today, may we approach this psalm in such a way that reflects uh, the, the implications of the gospel. And may we, may we enter in with David as he reflects on a, a, a terrible time in his life and as he records it, not just for his own purposes, but, uh, but for the purposes of Israel as well as for the purposes of God's people through the ages. And allow me, Lord, as your messenger to faithfully reflect your truth, to proclaim it, to press it home in such a way, Lord, that would glorify you and build up your people and, and, and challenge, Lord, those who, uh, who are standing opposed to you to humble themselves and to receive the truth of the gospel. We ask this, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Years ago, growing up in England, one of the things that was true about that culture was that um, England was very much a fighting culture. Now, you may have heard of hooliganism. You guys remember that back in the 70s and 80s? Um, and my dad would not allow me to go to a soccer game because it's kind of like the American version of hockey. You know, I went to a hockey game. Uh, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out, they would say, right? You, you go to a soccer game not just to watch soccer, but you go there to get in rumbles and fights and that kind of stuff. And um, it was just very much ingrained in the culture, even at school. And so there was this, this great pressure among, uh, among the, the, the young people to, to fight. And I remember look, you know, back in the day when I was a teenager that I, I just kind of felt that pressure and I ended up picking on, up on, or picking on this guy and picking a fight with him. And um, if, you're gonna, if you're gonna pick a fight with someone, don't pick a fight with a guy whose name is Steve Austin. If that might ring any bells for you, it will kind of express your generation. Um, Steve Austin um, was the $6 million man, if you remember. Um, and I just remember that time, and I remember that, you know, the fact going through that whole thing and getting in the fight and um, just what I did to inflict pain on that person. I was just a little scrawny kid, and I, I, you know, I kind of did my thing and ran as fast as I could. Um, but you know, I look back on that, and I look back on, on situations like that when I did really foolish, dumb things or things that hurt other people. And, and you know what? As I reflect on those things, I am, I, am, I am plagued still with guilt for my sinful behavior, my, my horrible... Um, relationship with people that I should have been loving to and I should have been caring toward and still I allow the pressure that was on me and we know that to be sin I didn't know that at the time but to to flesh out in ways that that caused harm and hurt to other people and that was when I was a teenager and yet as I look back on that as well as many other things that I did uh, growing up it, um, it just it isn't good to remember those things and honestly I think I think all of us recognize that we have a sinful past. 
We all can look back and, and remember times in our lives that we are ashamed of. We're reminded of at different opportunities or different circumstances uh, through life. And it may be, maybe a song brings back a memory, or maybe you're in a situation where something happened, or maybe there's a, a particular car that is similar to what happened to a certain occasion. Things happen, and they, they draw our memories out, and, and oftentimes we're, we're plagued by our memories. We, we play games with our thoughts. Um, we're reminded of our hypocrisy. We're, we're drawn away from believing what God has said, or uh, the, those, those memories seek to, to undermine our faith in the gospel. They bring us down. They tear us up. They leave us discouraged. And all of those thoughts, I would say many of those thoughts are not thoughts that like I am expressing right now. These are thoughts typically that we keep in the secret places of our heart. That there, there are things that we have struggled with for years and we remember and we don't want to tell anyone because we're ashamed, but, but they're there and we bring them up in, the, in that quiet place of our heart. And so the thoughts that only you and God know are taking place. And, and as they as they're freely running through our hearts, they can run havoc on your walk with God and your pursuit of Christ-likeness. Now, the psalm before us is a psalm that seeks to take you from the place of despair to the place of rest, from the place of defeat to the place of restoration, from the place of despondency to the place of certain hope. This is one of the natures of, of many, if not most, of the Psalms, beginning with crisis, ending up with resolve, beginning with sin, ending up with, with this demonstration of confidence in, 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 in the, the character of God and the promises of God. And that's a beautiful thing for us to remember. And yet, at the same time, in order to get there, we have to begin with the crisis. We have to begin with the sin. So this is a psalm that deals directly and brutally with sin and its effects. But it draws on God's mercy. It draws on God's steadfast love as our only hope. It's a psalm of David, but it's also a psalm for everybody. The fact that David wrote it, he wrote it out of his own circumstances. But the fact that he wrote it, he also wrote it ultimately for God's people. In particular, that, that he had around him. So Israel in particular, these were songs that were sung by the nation. That's why it's included here in the Old Testament. That's why it's included in the Psalter. But ultimately, for the people of God through the ages, this psalm still rings true. As Derek Kidner reminds us, the last two verses show us that the nation, in its own darkest hour, found words here for its own confession and its rekindling of hope. So this wasn't just a personal psalm. Ultimately, this has become a national psalm or a psalm for everyone who is a follower of God. Now notice the occasion for this psalm. It's written right there in the title. And by the way, the titles of the Psalms are part of the inspired record. Um, sometimes you have a different translation um, in a different language, and they'll actually include um, verse, the, these titles as verse one. I think actually in the Russian Bible, that's the way it's listed, because it's all part of that inspired record. So notice what it says. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, 
when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So, if you're wondering what was the occasion for this psalm, this is one of those situations where it's very, very clearly stated. This is why David is writing this psalm. This is what he's talking about. So unlike many of the other psalms, the the exact occasion is, is listed for us. The story behind the psalm is made clear. And it's an occasion that is marked by adultery, deceit, and ultimately murder. And it takes us back to our time in 2 Samuel, uh, we saw there for a number of chapters, I think it was like about four chapters, this, this whole story unfolds. David is, is at the palace, it says when kings go out to war, there's, there's a siege that's taking place, and the army's out there, and David looks across the, 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 the city, and he sees a beautiful woman, and she's bathing, and um, he it starts to burn for her. And so, being a king, he, he, he orders her to be brought to him. Ultimately, he commits adultery with her, but she happens to be the wife of Uriah, one of his mighty men. Um, so the plot really is thickened, and what is he going to do? Well, what happens, of course, is that she ends up being with child, and so he's got to figure something out, and so he tries to finagle for Uriah to come and, and come back and and. and he summons him for, for, for another issue, which is really just a ruse to get him back to the city so that he'll spend some time with his wife, and then they can say, hey, you know, this is, this is their child, this isn't David's child, and so on. But he's an honorable man, he won't do it. And so David ultimately um, has his commander put Uriah in the thick of battle and then to pull back when he's out there and he ends up being killed. And it was certainly an act of murder. And so this is all marked by adultery, deceit, and murder. These are the sins specifically that, that David would be addressing um, as he is writing this psalm. This is what he's thinking of. And it also marks that time then when Nathan, a little later, comes to him and, and paints this picture and this story uh, about a man who had, who had some some sheep and stole the one sheep from one person who had one and, and uh, Nathan just basically um, uncovers the cover-up that David had created and hones in and says, you are the man. You are just that kind of man, that sinful man. And David is struck and this exposure produces in him not rebellion but ultimately repentance. And so this exposure of David's Sin and, and the repentance on that occasion is, is ultimately the, the occasion for the writing of this psalm. So this is, a, this is a really, really dark time for David. You might want to say one of his lowest times in his whole kingly experience. But this psalm, as I said, is written for all who have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because it's not so much the specifics of whether it's adultery, deceit, and murder. You can, you can put other sins in here to, to describe what David is describing. And so all of us, whatever the memories are, whatever the sin that we have, whatever the baggage that we continue to bring or the baggage that we think is not covered by the cross that we still feel shame for, or we still feel guilt about, um, this will help us resolve that. This will help us work through all of those things. So this psalm is generic enough to encompass all of us when we sin 
so that we can know the path of true repentance and lean on God's abundant mercy and steadfast love. You say, now where am I getting all that from? Look at verse one. Notice to whom and to what David appeals in verse one. He says, have mercy on me, O God. I mean, he comes out of the stalls, boom. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. In other words, by virtue of your covenant love with me. That's that word hesed. We've seen that over and over and over again. God's covenant love with those who are his children. Not only that, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. So David here is crying out for mercy, and this is the kind of appeal that comes from someone who has no claim or right for the favor that he is begging. Man before God has no leg to stand on. He is totally and completely all alone and without hope in this world. He can only depend on God for mercy. David is privy, though, to some good news. Now, good news is good news for a reason. He's aware that the God of Israel is also the covenant God that has said love. He's also aware that the God of Israel is compassionate. And so David and is, is appealing now, not in an empty way, but this is an appeal that is based on that good news. So what is that good news? As I mentioned, steadfast love, abundant mercy. And that word, that expression, abundant mercy, it describes a deep-seated feeling of compassion, that, that God would now, because of his steadfast love, shower him with compassion in his condition as a sinner before God. So David is appealing for God's promise and his compassion to cleanse and to restore him back to favor with God. It's the cry of a genuinely repentant heart. It's a heart that has seen his sinfulness. It's a heart that wants to change his ways. It's a heart that longs for reconciliation. And also notice in this psalm what David has lost. There's probably a number of things we could point out, but look at verse 12. I mean, he's crying out to God, restore to me the joy of your salvation. He's lost that joy in his relationship with God because of sin, because of shame, because of guilt. So there's, there's a big picture I want to say proposition that I want to begin with here. This is not what you have in your notes. This is kind of big, and we're going to whittle it down for us. But as far as David is concerned, what we see here is David's appeal for God to restore the joy of his salvation based on God's abundant mercy and his steadfast love. This is what he's appealing. This is what he's asking. This is what he's crying out for. And when we sin, we can appeal to God to restore the joy of our salvation because of his abundant mercy and because of his steadfast love, his steadfast commitment to us by virtue of his covenant with us. And so we see right from the start that the psalm, or in the psalm, that the marks of true repentance are rooted, first of all, in the character of God. Secondly, the marks of true repentance are rooted in God's abundant mercy and steadfast love. And so for our purposes today, as we think about this psalm, what we can say is this. What we have uh, before us here 
is a guide that shows us the marks of true repentance. And for us, as we look at our own sinfulness, we can be asking ourselves, do we have these marks that that David uh, puts out uh, in pen and ink here for us to see? as As he bears his heart, as he comes before God, as he cries out, are these marks true about us? And there's going to be three of them. We're going to begin uh, with the first one. Let's read verses 1 and 2 and 3 together. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. We want to begin here by understanding that true repentance demands honest confession. Now, J.D. started our our, our time here this morning just just by reminding us that the the condition of the heart, it's it's deceitful, it's it's wicked. And I've been in context, Christian context, where um, people have gotten upset with me as a pastor because I talk about sin too much. And I'm just like, well, wait a second. It's like, we, do, we don't want to hear about sin. It was like, that's all part of the, the, the package. It's like David writing this psalm, but saying, I don't want to talk about sin. I just want to talk about mercy. And the reality, friends, is you can't get to the mercy without the understanding of the sin. And so there's a sense in which we have to be honest in our confession and our awareness of sinfulness and sinful behavior. And so we begin here by saying we must be willing to say, I have sinned. And that's what David is is modeling for us. David is fully aware that he has sinned. Notice the two expressions that reinforce that. He says, I know my transgressions. This is intimate, personal knowledge. And this word carries the idea of admission of and confession. He says, my sins are ever before me. This is verse three, right? My sin is ever before me. So he's reminded over and over again that he had sinned. Uh, He's tormented by that memory, and there's no denying that he is a sinner deserving of God's judgment and God's wrath. I I know. It's, It's ever before me. He's recognizing that he has sinned. This is David confessing what he knows to be true. Friends, confession, a lot of times we get these words mixed up, but confession is simply this. It's agreeing with God that his assessment, by virtue of what he's revealed in his word, about your condition is true. So confession is saying, God, you're right what you say about my sin I'm not arguing with you. I'm going to be humble now before you. What you're saying is true. That's confession. It's acknowledging um, or it's agreeing with God's assessment, all right? So how, how does he see his sin? And there's actually three pictures that he gives us. The first picture that he gives us is this, sin as a crime. The idea here is that this, this play with the words blot out and transgression. The idea of blot out means to remove the record, the, the idea of the, the word transgression 
is really a rebellion against a, a law, but in this context, it's a rebellion against a divinely constituted law. In other words, he's saying, erase the, the legal record of my rebellion against you, God. This is sin as a crime. There's a, there's a legal declaration. You have committed sin. There's a transgression. But he's saying, blot it out. Wipe it out. That's what he's appealing to God for. Secondly, sin as a stain. Sin as a stain. He says, wash me, how? Thoroughly. Now, this one takes a little bit more thinking through. You and I, when we have, you know, when we have clothes that need to be washed, we take them down to the laundromat, or we take them down to our washer, and we stick it in there, and we throw in the tide, or whatever it might be, and we go watch TV, or we, whatever we do, right? We don't quite have the same idea. Now, you, you've, you've seen, I'm sure, um, uh, people doing this, or you've seen some movies, or you've, you've maybe been to some countries where you see a little bit more of this, but in their day, washing a stain out required a lot of work, a lot of beating. It's wash, scrub, beat on the rocks, put it back in the water, wash, scrub, beat on the rocks. I mean, it was a whole process. And, and he's appealing to this, this whole process that God would actually do this by, by beating and treading and washing over and over again so that ultimately his iniquity, his wickedness, his perverseness, his twistedness is what that idea, that word is, is talking about, it is removed. So it's not just kind of like, well, I'll just kind of you know, get it wet and scrub a little bit. No, he, he's saying get it completely out. Whatever work needs to be done, do that so that I can be completely clean. And then we see sin as a disease. Sin as a disease. Cleanse me. And this is an appeal for ceremonial cleansing. The idea of sin is, is going astray or, or missing the mark. And uh, the idea is to remove that defilement of sin so that it can be, so that I can be, he's saying, um, clean again, ceremonially clean. I have now the freedom to, to worship God without the, the, the defilement, the ceremonial defilement of sin. So interesting and helpful pictures here of, of more of a, of, of a crime in a courtroom scene, a stain as well as a disease. But he, well, ultimately what he's saying is this, I have sinned. And he's appealing to God based on the reality that he knows that he sinned. But secondly, he's appealing to God based on the reality that, we, uh, that he is saying, I am a sinner. Now notice verse 4, against you, you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He's saying, I'm a sinner who ultimately sins against you. Now again, we need to, we need to settle in on that. We sin against other people, and maybe we feel like we've finagled our way around it so it's not going to be an issue, but ultimately, who are we sinning against? And so in the quietness of our heart, we need to do business with God first. He's the one that we have sinned against. He's saying, I'm a sinner who's ultimately sinned against you, who's guilty, who's deserving of God's judgment. Your words are revealing that to be true. You are right in finding me guilty. But not only that, he continues on in verse 5. I have been a sinner all of my life. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, the idea there is not saying that the, 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 the act of conception is sinful. It's simply saying that we are born with a sinful nature. I was brought forth in sin. In sin. In other words, my, my, my mother conceived me, and, and the sin nature began at that point in time. This is part of his nature. This is part of who he is. And as a result, you've been a sinner all your life. In other words, sin is ingrained in everything that he does. Now, we have a hard time seeing that. But that is what the theologians call the doctrine of total depravity. That we are totally affected by sin throughout so it can be something as small as what am I going to watch on TV to, you know, where am I going to go and get groceries or what am I going to do today or, or how am I going to respond to this person. Sin is always there in all of that we're dealing with. And we need to say, wait a second, I've got I to gotta allow the Word of God and the Holy Spirit to bring captive all of those things so that my decisions, my words, my choices are then Choices and responses that truly reflect the gospel and God at work in my life that is pushing away the sin that is so always there to grab us because it's, it's always around us. So his thinking, his choices, his passions, and his, even, even his goodness is tainted and affected by his sin. But not only that, he says, I am a sinner, and that is clear. That's verse 6. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. God's truth exposes the sinfulness of David's heart and ours. And his truth guides us to the point of delight. Now, friends, that is awesome. See, we, we, sometimes we're afraid even of, of opening up the Bible in a personal way because we just feel like, oh, I'm going to get hit with you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner. Or, I don't want to go to church because the pastor's always talking about sin. Well, if, if, if you'll come and you'll listen, we're talking about sin, but we're talking about sin in such a way that the gospel is bringing resolve. Because quite frankly, if you are a child of God and you have been saved, yes, you are still living with sin in your life, but you're standing before Christ is such that you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And although you are a sinner, you are in right standing eternally with God because of Christ. But there's something about your relationship with Christ now that is harmed and tarnished because of your ongoing sin. And to be able to distinguish those things is really, really important. Let me just, again, paint the picture a little differently. Um, two people get married. They go on their honeymoon. They have an argument. They sin against one another. Does that mean they're not married? No, they've covenanted together, but now that argument is something that has tainted or caused division in that marriage, and they need to be restored. They're still married, but now they need to work together as husband and wife to live their lives together. And this is, it's, it's just an analogy to help us understand that relationship with Christ. We have the confidence that we are eternally declared righteous because of Christ. But at the same time, we can, when we sin, that can hinder our relationship in our pursuit and our walk with God. Does that make sense? But we're still united in Christ. We still have that confidence. 
So God's truth doesn't just condemn us when we sin, it counsels us, it gives us wisdom. And friends, that's really important. So this, this true repentance demands an honest confession. That's the first thing. Secondly, I want you to notice as David goes on, that true repentance recognizes God's merciful cleansing. What we see from verses 7 through 12 is a catalog list of the effects of sin, but also the beauty of God's mercy. See, we could, we could just look at it and say, okay, sin, look at all these different ways that sin hits you, and, and I, it's there. But he's also saying, but this is what God has done. Or this is what I'm appealing for God to do, knowing that God is a merciful God. So a truly repentant person is willing to acknowledge their sinfulness, but also takes comfort and delight in the reality of God's mercy. And so we mustn't be afraid of God's exposure of our sin. In fact, we must long for it, trusting and believing that God is merciful and that he is committed to his covenant with us that took place on the cross. So notice how David progresses from sin to mercy in the following statements. There are seven of them. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in each one, maybe just to flesh them out a little bit, but just notice the progress from, from sin to mercy. Let's look at the first one, verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Sin defiles us through our being. But God's mercy cleanses us and makes us whiter than snow. As you see, isn't, that, isn't just a beautiful picture here of the reality of, of what sin does, but also the reality of mercy? Now, I'm, I'm sure all of us have seen the, the commercials on TV for laundry detergents. Right? You have... Here's this dingy white shirt laid out, and it's got all the spaghetti on it. Now, my first thought is, who in the world was eating that day, right? I mean, you're just like, really? But apparently there is some guy, some grown-up guy who wears a you know, large white T-shirt who gets spaghetti all over it, right? And, and, and then you have next to it, you know, this is the result of, of the washing, you know, and it's, it's just this pure white shirt. Until next year. Because when next year comes around, that same laundry detergent company will have a commercial and they'll say, new and improved, or stronger and more powerful. But I thought you showed me that we went from spaghetti stain to pure white. But now this must be a purer white because it's new and improved, right? It's stronger, it's better. And then, of course, the next year, they kind of avoid that. They just say, you know, it's a larger pack, you know, or something like that. Now, friends, get this. There is no new and improved or stronger and more powerful when it comes to the gospel. You can't get whiter than whiter than snow. This is what sin is. This is what the gospel does. Purge me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Secondly, sin deafens, sin deafens, but mercy restores. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken 
rejoice. So the, the idea here is, is that he hasn't been hearing joy and gladness. The sin that he has, he has uh, committed has hindered him from being able to hear the joy and the gladness that he, he once knew and he once enjoyed. This is what comes from a heart that is walking with God, joy and gladness. But when there is sin, your, your hearing capacity is diminished. That's what he's talking about. These are all uh, illustrations that are kind of helping us understand our spiritual condition. And as a result, he's, he's physically broken. The idea here is more broken in the sense that he's in distress because of the hand of discipline that is on him. Or his inner agony uh, was as great as the physical agony of broken bones. And he's longing, just longing to be restored. And so sin deafens, but, but he knows that mercy restores. He's not, he's not crying out for something that, that isn't true. He's crying out for something that God does promise by virtue of his mercy. Then sin disgraces, but mercy erases. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Now, you guys have seen this before. You've seen it when criminals have been arrested, and they're on TV, and they're walking by. You know what they do? They pull their coat over their head, or they walk by like this, and they tuck their head down. Why? Because they are ashamed. Now, they may be ashamed of their sin, or they may be ashamed of the fact that they've been caught but they are ashamed nonetheless. They hate to have their faces caught on camera. They, they cover uh, their, their faces because they do not want to be seen. It's the disgrace of what they have done that shamed them. So David's sense of disgrace went much further than that. It wasn't just the gaze of man that caused him trouble, but ultimately the gaze of God. He, he was ashamed that he had been seen by God. So David is appealing to God not to look on him with shame, but instead to blot out that sin, to wipe out the record of that sin so that David could lift up his head again. Okay, so here we have sin, the fact that sin disgraces, but, but mercy erases and really lifts us up so that we can, we can turn our gaze now back to God rather than kind of hidden away from him. Not only that, sin damages, sin damages. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Sin damages, but mercy renews. So the idea of create here is the same word that is used in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created, bara, uh, the, the, the heavens and the earth. It means to make something out of nothing. So David is, is appealing to God to 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 give him this, this new heart, but not just any new heart, a clean heart. He wanted a, a whole heart, a heart that was wholeheartedly committed to God once again. And not only that, to, to have this, this, new, this new heart would, would have the new attitudes, there'd be a, a new spirit that is, that is within him. And so it's only God that can do that. It's only God that can forgive. It's only God that can restore. It's only God that can create this newness of heart in someone who has committed sin. But this is all God's mercy, see? Next one, sin dooms, but mercy restrains. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Just think about that. The ultimate doom for anyone, whether they realize it or not, is to be cast away from the presence of God. 
I mean, that takes us to the realities of judgment day when those who have been rebellious with God, he, he casts away to eternal darkness. That is not something you long for anyone. And David here is saying, don't cast me away from your presence. Not only that, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Interesting, this is the first time in the, in the scriptures that the third person of the Trinity is described as the Holy Spirit. There's a sense in which David understood certainly the, the active presence of the Holy Spirit, maybe didn't quite understand what we understand from the New Testament of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in all of God's children, but he certainly understood the, the Spirit's presence by virtue of the Holy Spirit coming on him because that's what he did as king, that God was uh, empowering him for that particular position. But I think this, is, this has more to do with the active, ongoing presence of the Holy Spirit in him, not just as a king, but just as a follower of God. And friends, that is true for all of us. We are all, if we are God's children, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so to not have the Holy Spirit with us is the ultimate rejection, so to speak. It's the ultimate Hopelessness. It would be saying, I have lost this salvation. Of course, we don't believe that because Scripture teaches contrary to that. You say, well, well, why is David even saying stuff like that? He didn't need to say, cast me not away from your presence or take not your Holy Spirit from me because he knew that that wouldn't actually happen. But, but one who is repentant still cries out to God to do what he knows God ultimately will do, and that is here to not cast him away and to not remove his Holy Spirit. It's right for us when we're crying out to God to come to God and appeal to God for what we already know he will or won't do, because we're more sensitive to that. One who is repentant still cries out to God. He is acknowledging that he is unable to live a holy life without God. Therefore, he needs the help of the Holy Spirit. So God, don't take him away from me. It's not that God would take him away, but he doesn't want that. So you're appealing because you see the sinfulness of your heart and your condition. And so you're praying to God with the, the implications of what you see. That sin dooms, but... Mercy restrains. Mercy says, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. You are going to continue. By virtue of the covenant, by virtue of my mercy, you're going to continue to be in my presence. You're going to continue to have the Holy Spirit present within you. Friends, that's just an awesome reality. It's an awesome promise as one of God's children. The next one, sin depresses, but mercy delights. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. It's important we understand that David hadn't lost his salvation here, but what he had lost was the joy of his salvation. No joy. His fellowship with God was broken by sin, and as a result, joy had, had dissipated. That's what sin does, friends. It zaps us of our confidence and, 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 and celebration and, and just... Um, gladness in our relationship with God. You don't want to run to the Word of God. You don't want to spend time. In fact, you might even want to avoid going to church because you're just, you, you just know that you're so sinful and you've been rebellious and I just don't want to hear it. And I, I just, until you've gone to that place of, of repentance. And God breathes back in 
to your life, this joy that comes as a result of forgiveness. Now, friends, this joy doesn't come from trumped-up words of encouragement or a lively worship service experience. It's not an emotional thing. Joy is the result of a heart that is crying out to God in repentance. In other words, there cannot be any joy without a heart that is truly repentant, without a heart that is truly reconciling sin and embracing the forgiveness that God has granted through his mercy and through his covenant on the cross. You, you can have a you know, worship celebration, sing all the songs you want, but unless your heart has been, has been reorientated because of a cry of a repentant heart, there's no joy. It's a facade. So don't, don't allow substitutes to, to hinder you from what David is, is pleading here for. Sin also defeats. Sin defeats. But mercy upholds. It says, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Well, Let's put it this way, God willingly picks us up after sin's defeat, and he upholds us. He's the one who truly you know, grabs you under your arm, spiritually speaking, and lifts you up and says, listen, you can, you can get through this, and here's why. Because I'm a merciful God, and I have covenanted with you, and you can be restored to me. Let me, let me preach to you, let me teach you, let me show you what my word says, and just believe what I say in my word. See, God comes along and does that. Of course, in our context, he does that through the preaching ministry of the word, through our own Bible study, through other people who are ministering the word with us, but it is God who is at work. It is the Holy Spirit that is at work, lifting up believers who have been overcome by the guilt and the shame of their sin. So as a sinner who sins, David knows that he will fall. But he also knows that it is God who is the only one who can sustain him through thick and thin. Now, just a couple of things I think are helpful for us to think through relating to this section of this psalm. The fact that David prays for so many things in verses 7 through 12 indicates how many things that David knew that he had lost when he plunged into sin. So on, on a negative side, th- this is a message that reminds us that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves in those times of temptation, in those moments, either when we're, we're having our finger on the, on the mouse to click it, or maybe we're, we're, we're pursuing down a road to, to do something that, that you know is questionable, you know you shouldn't be doing, or whatever that, whatever that brink is, this is what should, we should be reminded of, that sin does come with costs. And we know that from the life of David. There are, is an abundance of costs, and David had to live with all those things. Th- th- this cost is, is serious. Sin will cause all sorts of damage to take place. And we, we see this vividly portrayed in the story of Cain and Abel coming with their offerings. Cain had not been faithful to God in bringing his offering, and this is what God says to him. Listen to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7. God speaking to Cain, who's kind of angry at this point in time. He says, if you do well, in other words, if you do what I've asked you to do, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, get this, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you. Its desire, in other words, is, is to actually upset you. 
I love one of the translations. This desire is to have you, but you must rule over it. See, sin is always there, ready to pounce and to damage and to cause havoc. And so we need to be constantly reminding ourselves of the implications and the, the costs that are associated with sin. See, sin is constantly seeking to fool us into thinking that it won't be that bad. Or you deserve a little gratification now and then. Or no one will be hurt. But we know all of those things to be lies. And yet we still press on. That's the negative side. Preach the gospel to yourself every day, especially in those times of temptation. On a positive side, if you have sinned, and if you have come to God in confession and repentance, you can be confident that God is ready and he's willing to restore you, to restore the joy of your salvation. So don't allow your guilt and shame to hold you back from God's mercy when you have been repentant. Instead, bathe in his grace. Bathe in his steadfast love. See, friends, it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing as you step back and you see the movement here from sin to mercy, sin to mercy, sin to mercy, sin to mercy. And, and David is saying, I want out of my sin and I want the mercy of God to be true in my life. You don't have to be stuck on the left side of the page. You can have all the benefits and blessings of what is on the right side of the page, the mercy of God being true in your life. And friends, um, that, that is just wonderful news for every believer. So, we have seen honest confession. We've seen merciful cleansing. Now let's look at what I'm calling the, the, the true repentance initiates a heartfelt Commitment. And here I want to give you a definition of repentance to begin with. You're saying, well, I've been talking about that. What do you mean by that? Repentance is a change of heart and mind that flows out of the gospel that leads to a change in a person's life and behavior. In other words, it's the gospel at work in the heart that's changing the heart and mind in such a way that the behavior and, 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 and the choices in life have been restored, have been reoriented because of the gospel. I was walking this way, now I'm walking this way. But why is it that I've moved from here to here? Is it just because I, I've pulled myself up and I've determined I'm gonna go that way? No, it's because of the truth of the gospel that says, you know what, you can be freed from this, now pursue Christ. And you have the strength of, of, of the Holy Spirit working in you, moving you now to pursue that goal. Repentance is a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's something we all must be doing every day. It's just turning away from sin and turning to Christ. Now, what's really interesting about Psalm 51, one of the things I found um, I was surprised at um, is that the historians, in particular of the Reformation in England, record um, that the, the martyrs, those who were taken to be burned at the stake because of their convictions about God and his word, in particular about the Lord's Supper, 
um, traditionally walk to their place of execution quoting Psalm 51. Now of all the Psalms that you would think to quote as you're going to be executed, why would you choose this one? I mean, this seems like, all right, what's going on here? There's a sense in which you can feel like this is just like bashing someone for their sin. Now, let me give you some reasons why. Because these men knew they were guilty of sin. (laughs) They knew it. They knew they were sinners. They knew they sinned. They also knew that because they understood their salvation was solely by God's grace and nothing else. In other words, they were sinners who had been blessed by God's mercy through his covenant that took place on the cross, which is what we just looked at. They knew they were guilty, but they also knew they were the objects of Christ's mercy. But also because they knew that in dying, they would be impacting the generations to come. In fact, there's a story of uh, one of them, I think it's not Thomas Rogers, but um, uh, it's, one of, it's one, of the, one of the reformers. He was a less, lesser known one, and he went reciting Psalm 51. And as the crowd gathered and they're jeering, they're throwing stuff at him, he just speaks louder. I mean, and the flames are going up, and, and he's quoting Psalm 51. And they, they ordered him to stop quoting Psalm 51 in English. It's like, I'm just thinking, what are you going to do? I mean, burn me at the stake? I mean, what's, <laughs> you know? And he just, they said, if you're going to quote it, do it in Latin. Well, no, no, he was going to do it in English because he wanted not only to die honoring God, but also die proclaiming the truth of the gospel that is contained in this psalm. And so we get to this particular section. I, I, I want to emphasize here that, that these men died because they understood that the gospel means something. It means something to those who have come face to face with their sinfulness in light of God's steadfast love and mercy. When you see those things coming together, you step back with joy and with awe of the great love that we have been the recipients of. So when your sinfulness and God's mercy are held side by side and you realize that God is is committed to you through a loving covenant, the covenant of the cross where Jesus Christ gave his life on our behalf and and, and the covenant where Jesus bore all your sin, it it means something and it initiates a change of heart for the things of God. So those guys walking to their place of execution understood that God was even working as well through their execution. And they wanted to die well. And they wanted to die proclaiming God's truth. So the, the point here is this, that, that true repentance initiates, bears fruit, right? Something comes out of true repentance, and that's what we're gonna see here. A heartfelt, first of all, uh, a heartfelt desire is initiated. Notice verse 13, 14, and 15, uh, and 16, r- respectively. First of all, a heartfelt desire uh, is initiated, first of all, to teach, verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. My friends, this is, this is the reality. We, we go through uh, the, the struggles of sin. God allows us to become teachers through that experience. Now, we're not saying, oh, go out there and get experience so you can teach. Not saying that at all. 
But we're saying, you don't have to go out there and have sinful experiences. You already have had them. It's all part of the, the, the walk with God. We are sinful creatures who sin, but we are forgiven for our sin. We have been granted mercy because of that. But when that happens, and when we come to God, and we are restored to him through repentance, the joy is one of the things that we can do is we can teach. We can have an impact on others. The writer of Hebrews reminds us that Jesus, as our great high priest, understands the kinds of temptations that we're facing. See, Jesus, in having that temptation from Satan, understood the kind of things that we would face. So he, he must, on a human level, has the right to speak into our world. And you and I, because we've faced sin, we've fallen in sin, we have been restored through forgiveness and God's mercy, now have the great privilege of coming alongside others who may be facing the same thing. And we're not doing it saying, well, yeah, you know, I was once one of these people, you know. It's not like that. It's just saying, hey, listen, you know what, friend, I, I've been there. And I know, I know the kind of things that you're experiencing. And let me help you not to make the same mistakes. See, that comes as, as fruit out of sinful behavior. Isn't that, isn't that incredible how God can take something so dark and turn it into something beautiful that can be helpful to others? So don't underestimate the power of God's forgiveness that ushers you into a place of service because of your struggle with sin. The question is, will you continue to allow your sin to master you, or will you fight against your sinful tendencies for the sake of teaching and encouraging others? Not only that, it teaches, or it initiates us in our singing. I mean, this morning, you know, Peter kind of, you know, talked about the implication of, of you know, we don't, we don't work to sing or to praise. We are saved first, and then we praise. It flows out, it bears fruit in the same sense. Our ability, our joy in singing is, is reflected because of the mercy that we've experienced, because of this constant steadfast love that we are the recipients of. So he says, deliver me from blood guiltiness. In other words, I have been sinful. And this, of course, is probably referring more specifically to the, the murder side of his sinful experience. But he's crying out for deliverance again. And then there's this promise that as a result of that, he would sing God's righteousness. There's something about repentance and confession and cleansing and, 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 and closeness with God that wants to break out in song. Now, friends, the church sings. A healthy church sings, not because we have voices that sound good, but we has a, it's because we have a God who is worthy of our worship. Praise and worship are all part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. And so we sing. And we sing with joy over what Christ has done. In fact, if you look at the, 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 the great revivals of the Old Testament, what you'll see is the word of God preached, the people's repentance. And then you'll see, you'll, you'll notice celebration in the form of worship and song. It's all natural. It all goes together. Even the Apostle Paul instructs us, sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the emphasis there is sing to one another. 
And the idea there is when we stand and we sing in the context of corporate worship, we're not just praising him, but we are proclaiming his righteousness to all those around us. We are saying by virtue of our song to God, to others, that he is worth praising. That the character quality that we may be focusing on in that song or in that stanza is worthy of our worship. So if I'm singing, I want to draw you to the same person that I am singing about. That's the power of song in the church. So we sing, and others are encouraged. Others who don't know him are encouraged. Others who are in bondage need to hear those songs. And others who are ashamed and need understanding are encouraged because of their standing in Christ. So we, we teach, we sing, but the third thing is closely aligned, we praise. Um, this is very close, so I'm getting these buttons ahead of time here. Um, but we, we, we praise. Verse 15, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you do not delight in, in sacrifice, or I would give it, you will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Listen, God is not so interested in the formality of our worship as he is with the heart of that worship. What you do in worship is important to God. Make no mistake about that. If it wasn't true, God would not have given us examples or instructions for worship, in particular for David. There, he was living in, under the administration where God clearly laid out, this is what I want you to do. Nevertheless, God is more concerned with true praise that comes from a heart that is right with him. That's far more important than the form of that praise. So, the first is the heartfelt um, desire that is initiated. Then there's a heartfelt lessons that are learned. And again, this reiterates what has just been said, but he says it again, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. There, there is a, a sense in which I could have titled this sermon a broken spirit. This is what it's about. This is, this is, this is the idea. This is, this is the tone that this psalm is shooting for in God's children, to be people who have a heart that is reflected by brokenness over their sin, but also embracing that mercy. Now, if that is true, God calls for a broken and contrite heart. That, that, that is the sacrifice truly that pleases him. That is the sacrifice that he will not despise. So fight and fight and fight against any argument that seeks to pull you away from confession and repentance. God does want you to take your sin seriously, but he does want you to acknowledge its presence. But he also wants you to be broken, remorseful, repentant, hungering for restoration. It is the stiff-necked and rebellious that God despises. Not only that, there's a heartfelt covenant that is remembered here. And this is, this is the message now to Israel proper. David is reflecting it, but he is now reflecting it in the context of God's covenant. God had met with David, and he had covenanted with him that he would raise him up to be king, and that through him a kingdom would be established. 
There's a promise given to David, and David is reiterating that, that God, even through his sinfulness, will still carry on his covenant, his promise with David. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. It's just a parallel statement. Zion is is Jerusalem at that point in time. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And so the history, in the history of Israel, God had raised up David to be king, raised him up out of obscurity by by his hand to establish Jerusalem as the center of Israel. If you remember, David brought the the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and he he erected there an altar, and that's where they would have the sacrifices there. It It was the heart of the worship of Israel. And so he's saying, God, will you continue then to do what you promised that you would do? Even in this dark hour for me, even in this dark hour for Israel, continue to do what you've promised your covenant would remain. You see, for David, this was an opportunity to appeal to God based on his covenant with God. For us, it's an opportunity to appeal to God based on his covenant through the cross. You might say that each time we repent of our sin, our covenant with God is renewed. It's not that that covenant is, is somehow undone or over It's just that it's refreshed every time. It's saying you will do what you have promised. What Jesus Christ did on the cross will continue to be a reality in my life, even though I have sinned, because you have promised that to be true. So we are the ones that need to remember. We are the ones that need to be refreshed. We need to be reminded of our adoption, our reconciliation, our redemption, and our salvation, and we could go on. We need to be reminding Uh, be reminded of our standing in Christ and our promised inheritance that comes with that. So these, friends, are the marks of true repentance that are rooted in God's steadfast love and abundant mercy, an honest confession of our sin and sinful nature, a merciful cleansing through the gospel that moves us from sin to the place of the recipients of mercy, and a heartfelt commitment that that fuels us for ministry. Listen, God is not done with you yet. He is not done. I want to finish up with just some concluding thoughts that fall out of this. I want to give you a, a, a loving and pastoral nudge toward three things as we finish up this morning. Number one, a nudge toward brokenness. I just want to appeal to you, fight, fight, and fight some more against any and all arguments that tell you to stop looking at your sin. Listen, God's word is a mirror to your soul. And as it reflects what is truly in your heart, it exposes your sin, your temptations, your lusts, and your idols. But God's word is also a kindness to your soul that leads us to brokenness and repentance. 
So, so lean into brokenness. I want to nudge you that way. I, wanna, I want you to kind of slip under the, the, the mist. You think of the, you know, you go to the Alameda County Fair and they have these mist stations, right, where there's kind of, kind of mist flowing out because you're hot. I, I want to kind of walk you through and I want to nudge you unto, uh, under that mist. I want you to feel this brokenness. I want you to, to embrace it. I want you to long for it. I want you to hunger for it. This is what God desires in us. And we here at Gateway need to be a place when, when our sin is exposed, no matter how horrible and, and, and nasty it might be, that we can turn to our brothers and sisters in Christ and our leadership and find understanding and helpful help from those followers of Christ, from the church, so that we can be restored in our walk with God. And it's sad to say that is not always true about a church. Someone's sin is exposed, or maybe that person is, is sharing and exposing their sin, and the response can be like, oh, okay. You know, no, there's a sense in which you might, you might initially be shocked. That's human nature, but at the same time, we need to fight to say, you know what? It took courage to share that. Now, now who's going to come alongside that person and help walk with them? We need to be a place where we're, we're a community that, that helps people who want to be restored in their sin to a place of mercy. That's part of the process and the responsibility of being a church. So a nudge toward brokenness. Secondly, a nudge toward boldness. And the boldness I'm talking about here is the boldness to approach God based on his covenant love toward us and to find abundant mercy. And sometimes we must have a bold faith that believes what God says to be true actually is true. When God says, I've cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, what does he mean by that? When he says, I will remember your sin no more, what does he mean by that? Do we believe it? I mean, if we're standing talking to God and God says, listen, your sin, I, I remember it no more. In other words, I'm not holding it against you anymore. But we are standing before him thinking that he does. There's a boldness that we need to have to actually believe what God says because it is so amazing. It's so beyond what we can comprehend. But it's true. This is what God says. And so we must believe it. Now listen to what the writer of Hebrews tells us. Hebrews 10, 19-25. You know this passage, I'm sure. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, right, because of the cross there, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, this, this kind of behavior flows out of what Christ has already done. And so there's a boldness. Let us, 
as gateway. Let us be the kind of church where sin is dealt with. It's confronted, and we're okay with it. But also mercy is granted. Mercy is shown. Mercy is extended that flows out of the gospel, a kindness, a restoration attitude among the people of God to say, we want to move people from their sinfulness into the place that God has created them for, and that is a place of walking with him in true fellowship. And that kind of really moves us into what I'm calling a nudge toward becoming. Not the greatest word, but it's a B word. Um, But the idea here is this, that you are in a process of spiritual growth. Talking about here progressive sanctification. Your sin and God's mercy and forgiveness are all part of this ongoing growth toward Christ-likeness, aren't they? And so there is a sense in which take your sin seriously, take mercy seriously, but also step back and realize that this is all part of your growth toward Christ-likeness. There are gonna be times that you're gonna, you're gonna have greater temptation to sin. There's gonna be times when you, you fall in that sin, but step back having received that mercy and forgiveness and say, okay, I still have progress that I need to make. See, God wasn't through with David at this point, and he's still not through with you. He's still moving you to become more like his son, Jesus Christ. So embrace that progressive sanctification, that progressively becoming more like Christ journey that he has you on for his glory. Lord, we've, we've looked at a psalm that has shaped the church for years. It shaped Israel, it shaped David, and it continues to shape us. And many times, Lord, as we've come to this psalm, we can read this and just feel like all that is going on here is, is kind of a, a heavy slap of sin, and yet what David reveals for us is a heart that acknowledges sin for what it truly is, acknowledges the damage that sin does, but also focuses on the mercy and the covenant that you bring to God's people who come with a repentant heart. And Lord, may we, may we see that heart reality, that that this is a a model for us to look at our own hearts, to look at our own sin, and to look at the mercy and the the promises that you give us, and and to say, God, we we, we want that. We we want that resolve. We want the kind of, of attitude that David had to be true in our lives, in our church. We want to be people that, in spite of our sinfulness, but because of God's mercy and forgiveness, that we will teach, we will train, we will nurture, we will encourage, we'll come alongside, we'll, we'll praise, we'll sing, we'll give you the glory with our lives, Lord. We are in awe of who you are and what you've done. We are so undeserving. Give us strength now. And Lord, I pray that maybe someone here today who has been struggling specifically with a particular bondage to a particular sin. And and, and that sin has been ever before them during the course of this sermon. And you are at work. Your Holy Spirit is squeezing their heart. And Lord, I I just pray for them right now, Lord, that you, by your Spirit, by your Word, would bring about conviction of sin and and there would be a humility to, 
to, to listen to what, it, what David has been saying here and to find this renewed relationship, this joy that you promise your children who are walking with you. And Lord, if there are those that are here who just have not come face to face with you, have not bowed the knee to you, Lord, may our time this morning, Lord, be a, a time when, when your gospel would be received and that you would be glorified by bringing another son or daughter into the fold of your church. We ask this, Lord, for your precious name's sake. Amen.